Up there as a reminder on the phone, we have services 10.30 and 2.30 tomorrow of our local time here, and you know how to translate that where you happen to be. So 10.30 and 2.30 tomorrow, and then we'll return to our regular 1 o'clock time on the weekly Sabbath, which follows the seventh day of unleavened bread. Well, we had a a break in going up to Zion, and uh, I felt that we had a, a really good opportunity up there to sit and look at the beauty of that which God has created around us, and had a very good give and take, question and answer type of thing. Uh, discussing Zion and Jerusalem and creation and several different topics, and I felt it was very helpful and profitable, and we communicated very well there. So uh, that was a positive, and then I had another positive yesterday. Terry gave us a good sermon, and I didn't have to speak, but uh, back at it today. But where I left off last time uh, really was in discussing there in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, how Paul was urgent upon those Corinthians to put sin out of the church, out of their lives. Uh, an individual who was doing a, a, a major sin habitually and publicly and openly. Uh, so he wanted that dealt with immediately because the days of unleavened bread were drawing near and he wanted them to be able to keep it with sincerity and truth. So, the point I was trying to get across is that which we read before, going there in Exodus, and how God told them to be ready to leave at a moment's notice, to be dressed and prepared to get out of what would symbolically become sin. It was a physical captivity at that point, But we are in a spiritual captivity to he who deceives the whole world and to our own human nature and to the culture and the society around us. Three major issues that we have to deal with. So we we talked about the haste and how God doesn't want us to let sin linger in our lives. Uh, And today, I want to get down more to... uh, what we need to do about it. And I want, first of all, to go to uh, Exodus 13, which, as you know, they left that night, uh, after midnight, when the Egyptians lost their firstborn and were ordered to go immediately on pain of death if they didn't get out of there. So they scattered from their dwellings, from their homes, took their kneading troughs on their shoulders and their animals and so on with them, and spent the rest of that night and day getting into Ramses, where very obviously they had been given instruction ahead of time that they were to gather. So it was not a totally disorganized thing, but God had caused Moses to give them instructions ahead, knowing uh, that things could get perilous, uh, they could become very dangerous. So... Hence the instruction of being prepared to go even through the night as they ate the lamb with their loins girded and their staff in hand and their shoes on. And then when that call did came, uh, they were under great pressure to get out of there very quickly. But to arrive at Ramses. And there they got further organized, as I mentioned in the last sermon, in ranks of five, uh, 
They didn't just go out as a horde like you might have seen in some Hollywood movie, uh, but they were very, very organized, right down to five men abreast, uh, marching out like soldiers. Uh, God is not the author of confusion, and between goats and lambs and sheep and camels and children and everything else going out as a mob uh, would have been utter confusion, and they wouldn't have moved as rapidly and accomplished as much. And that's partially what I want to discuss before the day's over, is getting ourselves organized so that we might actually accomplish something instead of just saying, you should ought to quit sinning, uh, and you telling yourself, I need to quit sinning. Uh, we, we've got to be a little more aware and a little more organized than that if we're actually going to accomplish something. But picking it up here in Exodus 13, uh, God makes a point, verse 14, and it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? What's this Passover all about? What are these days of unleavened bread all about? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand, the Eternal brought us out from Mitzrium, from the house of bondage. Now, Paul makes quite an issue in Romans and Galatians and other places about bondage and the bondage that breaking God's law does to us. It isn't the law that's bad, but the penalty of the law is bad, which is death. So, they had to get out of bondage, and that is the main point that God brings up first in telling our children that these days are about getting out of bondage. They're a matter of getting away from that which hurts us, enslaves us, can kill us. And of course, we understand spiritually that means any type of sin that might dwell in our minds and bodies. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, he didn't want to resist it all the way, that the Eternal slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Eternal all that open the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. Just as God redeemed them, uh, therefore firstborn did not die, uh, and Christ is the firstborn of many brethren, and we are even spoken of as firstfruits or firstborn. In that sense, him being the uh, eldest of the firstborn. So the parallel is there exactly uh, with what happened back then and what we are faced with today. Now notice that God had to slay those people in order to get Pharaoh to turn them loose. It did not come easy. came through ten plagues that were very sore, very difficult. But sin did not want to let them go. Just as your sin and mine do not want to let us go. They cling to us. They become an emotional issue. They become physical issues, mental issues. Attitudes, all kinds of things that are contrary to the law of God in the Spirit uh, become issues in our minds that, in many respects, we don't even wish to face, much less actually abandon. We cling to them, 
And it took the mighty hand of God to spring them. It shall be a token upon your hand, and for a frontlet between your eyes. For by strength of hand the Eternal brought us forth out of Mitzrayim. And it came to pass, verse 17, Pharaoh had let the people go, that God let them not through the way of the land of, led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. So even as they were coming out, God understood that they would want to go back. At the first sign of trouble, the first sign of temptation, the first sign of difficulty, they'd want to go right back where they came from. And attitudes that pervade our minds become habitual, do they not? Whether it be things that we've been suffering with for days, weeks, months, years, even decades, they become habitual. They sort of wear a deep rut in our minds and emotions, and our minds automatically go there. And when you try to jerk them out of that rut, it's very difficult, and they want to go right back. If you've driven even a four-wheel drive vehicle in mud, you'll realize that whoever went through before you made ruts. And you're in those ruts. Now, if the mud is deep enough, you might even high center because your wheels are so deep in the rut that you can't get out. And sometimes by turning the wheel very violently and quickly, you can get the wheels to jump up out of the rut. But the problem is, once you get them jerked out or you get the front wheels out, the rear wheels stay in, and if you manage to get all four out, which is difficult... It's greasy and slimy, and you tend to slide right back in. And sometimes, almost as soon as you get the front wheels to pop out of the rut, you slide and go back in immediately. I've experienced that many, many times. If you're driving a four-wheel drive under those circumstances, and if you've done it much, you learn very quickly to steer with four fingers and hold your thumbs out like this. Because when that wheel jerks out of your hand to go back in the rut, you can break your thumbs. Little tricks you learn the hard way. And it's same, the same thing with attitudes and difficulties that we might have. If we try to break free, it's just the, the, what, the rut is worn so deeply in our minds and our way of thinking and our emotions but it's so easy to slip right back where we came from. So God said, I'm not even going to take you through the way of the Philistines, even though it's nearer and closer, because at the first sign of adversity, you're going to slip right back where you came from and go into the captivity of those people again. As hard as it was, as frustrating and upsetting as it was, you're liable to slip right back. Now, they didn't enjoy slavery, did they? They murmured, they murmured, they groaned, they complained. They wanted delivered. But God knew as soon as they were delivered, the first sign of trouble, they'd want to go right back. So he made a hedge against that by taking them 
around by a little more roundabout way. <clears throat> but that didn't <clears throat> completely stop that problem. In chapter <clears throat> 14 on down in verse 8, end of the verse, they went out with a high hand. They were happy. They were excited. Uh, they had broken free. Uh, God had caused this to happen. And boy, they were excited. But Pharaoh, up in verse 5, had said, Why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? They were under such great pain and misery that God had brought on them, just like this nation is about to go into. But as soon as their way of life was altered, their servants were gone. There's nobody to bring me my whatever. There's nobody to go get this. There's nobody to build my house. There's nobody to build our public buildings. Where are our servants? They didn't want to give up their way of life either. Israel, meanwhile, was high-fiving all the way down the road. Here we, we're happy. We've been sprung. And then they saw Pharaoh coming in verse 10. And how the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Eternal. Now, they had reason, in a sense, to be afraid, did they not? They had been in bondage there for a long, long time. And I don't know how long they'd been in Egypt for 430 years, but how long they had actually been in hard bondage, I, I don't think. There's any indication, but it had been certainly a, probably a good long while. So they were afraid of Pharaoh's army, and naturally so. Now, when I see Satan's army arrayed at times, where they're trying to take us apart, or trying to take you apart or me apart, uh, I get a certain fear. And I rebuke it. Don't want Satan around. Don't want his minions and his demons around. I've experienced too many things with them over the years. So there's a certain uh, concern that comes over. I don't mean a, a fear where I go into trembling, but there's a certain concern that comes to mind, and I'm very quickly to say the eternal rebuke you. Because if a thought comes into my mind that's not my normal carnal Avenue that this is something different, I can recognize that isn't what normally I would have go through my mind. This is something some, from somewhere else. So get rid of it, and as quickly as possible. Bad enough dealing with my normal difficulties and controlling every thought. So they were fearful, and in verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear you not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Eternal. Now, we are very soon, as a spiritual body, spiritual Judea, Judah, going to be faced with the same thing. We know that the Assyrian is going to come into our land and that they will have to be repulsed with the help of God. We know God will have to be a wall of fire around us or we will be destroyed like everybody else. And he tells us several times over, Fear not, be of good courage, be strong, and work. Don't let fear override you as you see all this coming down because God is there to protect us. 
to help us, to strengthen us. Do we believe that? Do we trust Him? Do we have faith in these scriptures to know? Now, these people didn't have the spiritual background that you and I have, did they? Moses had just come on them suddenly, and it was natural to fear when they saw armies coming. But he said, don't fear. Verse 14, the eternal shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the eternal said to Moses, Wherefore cry you to me, speak to the children of Israel, that they go forward. So he even told Moses, don't you stand there and stammer around. Tell the people to go forward. What do you mean, go forward? We're at the, on the beach, <laughs> the Red Sea. We're looking over our shoulder and we see Egyptians coming and you want us just to walk out in the water. You betcha. Go forward. God does not always make the way easy. He does not even make it appear to be a way to go sometimes as here. They were between the devil and the deep blue sea. I don't know where that expression came from, but it might have come back all the way from there. But God said, I brought you out here to leave Mitzrayim, so go forward. And then he told Moses what to do, to stretch out his rod, and then Israel could go on through the midst of the sea. And then he said, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, and he'll come after you. In verse 18, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Eternal when I have gotten the honor upon Pharaoh and upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. He destroyed their entire army, and the rest of Mitzrayim who heard the story uh, knew that God must have intervened for this to happen. Now, he tells us in chapter 15, The Eternal is my strength. Here's the song of Moses. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Now, doesn't Isaiah 40 tell us here in the end time essentially the same thing? Make straight in the highway, uh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, and to build a temple. Haggai is replete with that story, along with Zechariah. But we are to do that. I'll, I'll not spend time on, <clears throat> on that prayer necessarily here. But they came through the Red Sea, God having delivered them now incredibly twice. Well, really, eleven times if you count up all the plagues and the firstborn being killed, which actually was the key that sprung them, so... Count the firstborn dying and then being sprung there is one, and then the Red Sea is number two. So two specific, absolute, utter deliverances. Chapter 16, And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, 
after they departed out of the land of Egypt. So they'd been on the road for a month. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Would to God that we had died by the hand of the Eternal in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They read motives into Moses. You planned all along to bring us out here and have us die of thirst and hunger. Now, where would they get that idea? They recognized that God had brought them out. So, in selling Moses and Aaron, you brought us out here to kill us. They were really saying, God, you brought us out here to kill us. Because Moses didn't spring them out of Mitzrayim. God did. Moses didn't do anything but stretch his rod out at the Red Sea, and God parted the waters. So God ultimately is responsible for having brought them out, right? So when they accused Moses, they were accusing God when they attributed or ascribed this motive to Moses, they were ascribing the, mo the motive to God. God didn't lose patience with them there. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll rain bread on you from heaven. <laughs> you're, you're in a lousy attitude, but you think we brought you out here to die. So, here comes the manna. Here comes bread from heaven just as Christ came from heaven and brought us the living water and the bread, his body, that we might be delivered from sin. The spiritual parallels are all the way through here. And he even said down here uh, in the end of verse 8, your murmurings are not against us, but against the eternal. Moses understood that. And then they had the manna, and you have the story of the Sabbath and everything coming in here, and it would only come on six days a week. So they ate manna. And then in chapter 17, the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys, and they came to a place, and there was no water to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, Why chide with me? Why do you tempt God? This time he laid it right back in their lap. You're not really against me, you're against God. And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, You brought us out of Egypt to kill us. It's like a, a broken record. It just goes on and on, over and over and over again. It becomes quite annoying, I would imagine, to God and to Moses. He brought us out to die. So God gave them water. Verse 7, end of it, they tempted the eternal saying, Is the eternal among us or not? Now there's another excuse that comes up quite readily to us. God instructed us. 
God brought us here. Then you look around and over a period of time you don't get the answers you thought were coming quicker than they have and you think, is God really among us or not? Human nature is the same always. (laughs) It doesn't change over time. That's why Solomon could quite clearly write, there's nothing new under the sun. All the excuses, all the attitudes, all the problems, all the motivational uh, excuses of attributing motives to those who didn't have that motive at all, there's, there's nothing new. It's all been done before. And then <clears throat> they had to fight. As long as Joshua held Moses' hands up, Israel would prevail. If Moses' hand went down, uh, the Amalekites or whoever it was would prevail. Well, they went through this over and over and over again. Ideally, whichever Passover you took first, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, differs for all of us. Ideally, you would have quit making excuses and walked out of sin at your first Passover. And you would have never looked back, you would have never murmured or complained, you would never have sinned again. I did say ideally. (laughs) But human beings don't work that way. And it didn't work that way back then either. Now why did God write all this back there? For us to read here, upon whom the ends of the world have come. Because we tend to be the same way they were. Chapter 19, verse 4, he says, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I brought you out here to me, to be with me. In here you murmur and you complain. You even said, verse 8, All that the Eternal has spoken, we will do. He said in verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do we read that in Peter? I think Terry read that just yesterday, maybe, if I remember correctly. If not, it's been read recently. So then, God gets organized. Chapter 20. He tells them what sin is. He writes it down, one point after another. This is sin, this is sin, this is sin, this is sin. We think we know the Ten Commandments, don't we? Well, we found out in Bible Baseball the other night that if you're put on the spot, which is the fourth, which is the third, which is the tenth, uh, people will go blank. Now, I don't doubt they know the Ten Commandments. Given enough time, they could probably list them all. I don't know whether we'd get them all in order or not. Do we with our own sins? Do we get organized enough to know what they are and compare them with God's commandments? That's how you know what they are by definition. And get organized enough to do something about it. Well, God had been putting up with their complaining and their murmuring and their backwardation for some time here. I'm sure he had it in mind ahead of time. 
But he said, all right, now I'm going to make a list of things that you need to keep. Things you need to do and things you shouldn't do. And when we examine ourselves before Passover, we should be making at least a mental list and more probably a physical list as well. Now, you can check things off in your mind a little bit, but it helps you zero in on it if you actually write it down. You might also sign it and date, date it and forget your notes on the table here so everybody gets a chance to, to read it. No, I, maybe you ought to sew it on the inside of your shirt pocket or something, or don't sign it. But we have to get organized in order to accomplish something. And that's what had to be done here. So God got it organized. All right, here are the rules, people. So let's let's do a little bit of a laundry list here list here. <clears throat> First of all, by going through the examination process, what you're doing is you're finding things that are wrong. In your mind, your heart, your attitude, your emotions, your feelings, your relationship with God, your relationship with other people. You're going through, you're examining your thoughts, your mind, and your attitudes to determine areas that you might be sinning in, that you might have an ungodly attitude, an unchristlike attitude. Are all our thoughts in the captivity of Christ? No. Our minds and emotions can take us a lot of different places, can't they? And we have to define those things which are contrary to God's law, according to His Word, every word of God, is given by inspiration of God, and is there for correction, for guidance, for reproof, and instruction in righteousness. Second Timothy 3.16, I think. That's what it's there for. So if you're going to examine yourself, you need to examine yourself in light of this book. Because you can deceive yourself into thinking that what you're thinking about any one given subject is okay. This isn't so bad. Or however you want to justify and deceive yourself. So, this book will strip away the deception. It will make you face the idea that what you're thinking is not what God would have you think, and it's not the way He thinks. So, if you're going to overcome anything, you just can't say, well, I think I'll overcome this week, and let it go at that. Nothing will happen. Absolutely nothing will happen. So, find it, and then admit it to God and to yourself. You need to go through that process of admitting it. You know, you can go down a list of sins and say, well, I could have a problem there, or I might have a problem there, you know, I don't, don't want to think about that one, and this one's a pet. Uh, so, we, we can find a way. 
So, find it and then admit it. God tells us to confess and to forsake. Not necessarily to each other, but to Him. So, confession, confession has to be not only to yourself, but to God. Well, why does God need to know about it? Well, He already does. <laughs> you haven't hidden anything from Him. And if you're, we'll find out that He needs to know about it if you're going to do anything about it. Because chances are you're not going to do anything about it by yourself. We'll get to that later. Find it, admit it, and then make a list. Make a list. The each, each way that you come across it, admit it, and list it, imprints that on your mind and your emotions that this is indeed a problem. And you know it's so easy to have or to recognize a problem and then go your way and forget what manner of man you are. I think James talked about that. We look in the glass and then we go merrily on our way. Or as Herbert Armstrong used to say, People stumble over the truth and fall and pick themselves up and go on as if nothing had happened. It's easy to pass over or to look over or overlook or not acknowledge what is wrong. If you make a list, every time you review the list, you'll remember it. Now, there may be some things that are so obvious to you that have been a problem, maybe a way of thinking or pattern for decades, and those you're fairly familiar with, but probably those also are your favorites because they've been around so long, the things that you like to indulge yourself in that may not be entirely godly, not the way he would do it. <clears throat> and somewhere, then, once you list those things and have them indelibly printed not just in your mind and emotions, but on paper. You've got to make up your mind to do something about it. In other words, a decision, a commitment has to come next. Now, there are sometimes things that we wish we wanted to do, but we really don't want to. Why does a sin, a mode of thinking, an emotional rut, whatever it might be, what happens to it? Where does it go? Where did it come from? What are you going to do about it? Well, if you had your way, you'd do nothing about it because you like it. And you wish you wanted to overcome it, but you really don't. So at some point, you must go in front of a mirror or bow down before God's Word and God Himself and ask Him for the desire, the real, firm conviction that you need to fix this. If you really wanted to change something, you probably would already have done so. 
But there are times that we recognize something isn't good for us, is wrong for us, whether it be things we do or things we think, and we really don't want to change it. And we won't unless we get serious about it. It could be things having to do with money, things to do with health. It could be things to do with work, with interpersonal relationships. It could be anything that is not really of God. I was thinking about this this morning in a vision of an old movie came into my mind, Gone with the Wind. Now here was Scarlett O'Hara, and she was portrayed in that movie as very, very selfish, wanting her own way no matter what, growing up that way, and being very controlling and selfish. Now, within that movie, she somehow got a crush on her sister's husband, Ashley. And that played over and over through the movie from time to time, her crush on Ashley. Well, that was her sister's husband. That was illegal. That was wrong. And the way they portrayed him, he wasn't really a strong man, for the most part. And nothing there really that you'd think, why would she want him instead of Rhett Butler? And you sort of agonized over it as you went through the movie. Get over it, Scarlet, for crying out loud. Your sister's a sweetheart. She's got this husband, and you want him. Why did she want him? There was no real obvious reason except she was utterly selfish and he belonged to her sister and therefore she ought to have him. The only reason I come up with, jealousy, envy. That's my sister's husband, but he ought to be mine. Now, as portrayed in the movie, she was not ready to admit her wrong or that that was sin, it was an obsession. And she wasn't about to give it up. There were a lot of things about the character that she played, Vivian Lee played in that movie, that may have caused her to lose it mentally years later, go through a mental breakdown and insanity, I've heard. Why? Well, when you're doing a role, a character, in a movie or on stage or whatever, a good actor will get into that role to the place that they begin to think like the character that they're portraying. And you get where you live it. You begin, even in personal relationships with people around you, to talk as that person talked. You, you get in character, and it gets where you wear it. I've been in some of those roles from time to time. And you're practicing, and you just use it. 
through the day. Because you're trying to do it as well as you can do it. And maybe that utter selfishness and that envy and that jealousy and all the things that Scarlet played so well, she had played the role and developed the character to the point maybe she became that. And it drove her nuts because she couldn't get over it and get past it. She played the role very well, in my opinion. Did a superb job of it, but it was really as, as, as cute and as sweet and as beautiful and everything and talented as she was. She was a true pain in her attitudes and approaches and selfishness. Now we have to get into the character of Christ. We have to, in that sense, role play. Because it is not natural for us to act like Christ, is it? Our minds do not go there. Now in this particular case, it isn't a character act in that sense, except that it's unnatural for us. Our natural way of thinking is the works of the flesh. Selfishness, vanity, ego, jealousy, on and on they go. That's natural for us. We can play that role easily. It comes it just, that's so easy to play the works of the flesh and to play that character. But when we're told, you need to act like Christ, you need to think like Christ, you need to be like Him, that is a role we have to practice every day in order to get into that character. And we can leave it just like that. First sign of adversity, first sign of difficulty, we revert to our human carnal thinking and what we want as opposed to what he would have us have. And it shows in very many aspects of our lives. So, don't just wish you wanted to overcome something. Sometimes, you have to go to God and ask Him fervently to give you the desire to overcome something. Because many of the things that we need to overcome, we simply don't want to do. Scarlet did not want to give up Ashley. And then she wouldn't, didn't know what to do with Brett. And then she screamed at God at one point and said, I'll never go hungry again. I can see how that role might have caused her difficulties later on. She played it well. But it was utterly human. Did she ever talk to herself and say, Scarlett, you need to straighten up now? I don't recall that being written into the role. But we have to, because we're here to be like Christ. So don't just wish. You have to put it into action. And that desire has to come from God's Spirit. Because humanly, naturally, we like what we like and we want what we want. And we don't want to give up. 
A, we don't want to admit it. And when we do admit it, we find we don't have the character, the will, the power, the strength to do it. And part of that is that we don't want to in the first place. And you're not liable to overcome anything that you really don't want to give up. So make sure the desire to come out of whatever sin you might have difficulty with, you want to overcome. And you're going to have to go to God to get that kind of commitment. You're not going to find it on your own. You don't have the willpower. You don't have the strength of character. That can come from God. Another thing we need to consider then in getting organized is how a particular sin may affect you. When is it a problem? What conditions, time of day, at work, at home, at school, wherever you might be, when do you have a problem with it? Is it dinner time? Is it snack time? Is it morning, evening, night? Is it when you're around someone or certain people that it becomes a problem? In other words, begin to isolate when I have a problem with this, why I have a problem with this, and as you isolate those things, then you can become aware that, hey, the problem I'm working on, I wasn't having a problem an hour ago, but now I do. Is it where you are, who you're with, certain topics that come up? What makes your mind go back to that which is not good for it? And then you have to assess what am I going to do about that? Am I to stay away from this? Something on the internet? Some kind of entertainment you like? Foods you like? Whatever it might be. How do I get away from that? How do I help myself overcome it by not putting myself in a position that causes it to pop up? How do I get away? In other words, minimize the risk. <laughs> don't maximize it. I don't think, to use the same analogy again, when a drunk needs a hamburger, the best place to go to get order his hamburger is the bar. You know, he could find some place else to get one that doesn't serve something that is his problem. So you need to find ways to avoid your weakness. What causes it? What brings it on? Who are you around? Where are you? Now, just as Israel marched out of Mitzrayim, they kept thinking back. But I like. But I want. I want the leeks and the onions. I want food. I want things that I left behind. I guess Lot's wife would fit in there pretty well too. 
I don't know that it was a, a matter of turning her head and looking back. And it may have literally been. But certainly she was thinking about what she was leaving behind. God tells us to come out of Babylon, come out of this world. He even tells us to physically get ourselves up and move ourselves before this financial crash and military takeover of this nation occurs. When is it coming? I don't know exactly. But he tells us to get out before it happens. And he even says they'll be running in front of the northern army trying to find their way to Zion there in Jeremiah 50, first two or three verses. <coughs> Barely get out in time. Some might not. But did they go to God to solve their problem as they came out of Egypt? Or did they murmur at Moses and murmur at God? Instead of actually changing what they needed to change, their attitudes and their approach. No, they just murmured and complained and muttered to each other about where they were going and what the motivation was. You just brought us out here to kill us. Well, God brought us out here to save us. <laughs> That's what he brought us out here for. But then, you know, we can get things turned around in our minds. So we need to go to God and focus on him. If you're going to overcome something, you need God's help. I said that in a different way a little earlier, but what did Christ tell us there in his last message to the disciples? Come to me. Ask. Paul says, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. He knows that you needed a comforter, comforter, a strengthener. You needed power. You needed capacity and help to overcome and to grow. Walking in the Spirit cannot be done without the Spirit of God. You're walking in the flesh unless you're being led by the Spirit. And you need to go daily and ask for God to give you His Spirit, His power, and not just mouth it. Not just mouth it. We do that some we get in a rut with our prayers, and they can be the same old prayer over and over and over again, and asked without feeling, without emotion, without deep sincerity, without expecting anything to happen. Now God says if we find Him, we're going to have to seek Him with all our might, heart, mind, body, and soul. That we're going to have to stay after Him. And never give him any rest, as he puts it in Isaiah. Like, as Christ used the analogy, the woman before the unjust judge. She pled and she pled and she asked. She had a real need. And he finally says, oh lady, do it your way, but get out of my hair. And God tells us to do the same thing with him. Give him no rest until things happen. Do we have yet another year to wait until all these things come down? We may. Is that going to make us panic and give up? 
Or do we just commit ourselves to know that God knows exactly what He's doing? His timing is always precise. What if He had delayed half hour in parting the Red Sea? Been big trouble. <laughs> but He didn't. He did it at precisely the right moment. And all of this, all these prophecies we've read about are going to come to pass. But they're going to come according to God's timing and exactly the way that he knows how to do it. We can imagine, we can speculate, we can think about, but he knows. And we need to trust him. We have to trust him. So go to God and trust him in faith that if you keep going and you mean it with all your heart, and you don't just wish to want to, but now you've come to the point you want to change something. Go to Him for power and strength, ability, guidance, because that's the way we overcome. And the next thing you need to do, then, is turn it loose. Whatever it is, just turn it loose. You can agonize over it, you can pray about it, but if you don't finally come to the point that you're willing to just turn it loose, it won't happen. This is a process that we have to go through. You didn't want to admit it. You didn't even want to examine yourself and find it. You didn't really want to talk to God about it. You didn't really want to give up whatever it is and was that causes you to think and do it. You didn't really want to go to God in fervency and ask His help. And then you finally get down to the point where you may have gone through all those steps, and then it's a matter of saying, I give up. I turn it loose. You will find that there are always enablers to your problem, whatever it might be. Satan wants you to have that problem, plus some, and he'll introduce those to you in his good time. But he wants you to keep the problem. There are some in your support group, whatever that might be, that don't want you to overcome it because it makes them more comfortable to have company in it. There are always enablers around. If you have an alcohol problem, do you have any trouble finding enablers? People that will provide you a drink or drink with you? Nah, that's pretty easy to find. If you have a sex problem, is it hard to find a fornicator or an adulterer? The world's full of them. They're all around the place. They're everywhere. Not hard to get in trouble that way. Eating problem? You can never find other people just like us. Whatever it might be, emotional issue, 
Illegal romance like Scarlet? Doesn't matter. But you have to determine in your mind that whatever problem you're dealing with, I'm just going to turn it loose. It is a, it is a, a decision that you have to come to. All of these other things will help bring you to that decision, but there comes a point where you have to make it, where it will not happen. They had trouble getting out of Egypt. They had trouble staying out. They had trouble keeping their attitudes right. Some of them even did go back. God gives us a Passover every year. And as I said, ideally, we would have overcome everything in the first seven days of unleavened bread that we kept. But being human, we didn't even overcome them all the second feast of unleavened bread. Or the third or the fortieth. <laughs> we still find that sin is a ball and chain around our neck and has worn such emotional ruts in our minds that is a very difficult thing. And of course, as long as we're human, this will be. Through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. And there will be resistance, have to be resistance till either the day you die or the day you're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. As long as we're human, there are going to be temptations and frustrations and things that we have trouble with. Now, do we have to become perfect? I don't want to discourage us all. Do we have to become perfect before we die? We've had several people die right here on this property. And I don't remember a one of them that I would have judged absolutely perfect. Not one. But I saw people who were trying to serve God, obey God. I saw people who were essentially following his way of life. They hadn't overcome everything. But I rest assured that they'll be in the kingdom of God because they were working at it and trying. I can't make the judgment by any means on anyone. When I laid my mother to rest a few weeks ago, she'd been faithful to God and trying to overcome and grow for over 60 years. Was she perfect yet? No. In fact, her mind was almost gone before she died. But while she was there, she tried. And I remember hearing her 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, saying, well, I need to work on this, I need to work on that. If we had to become absolutely perfect, the kingdom would not have a bride for Christ. The perfection comes in the change, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But that does not obviate the fact that we have to overcome. And he told all seven churches that. If you will sit with me in my throne, you must overcome. So he gives us these seven days every year to remind us of this story, to cause us to formally work on it even harder for seven days than we do the rest of the year. But I know that by sundown tomorrow, you and I will not have overcome everything we need to overcome. We just won't. And I'm giving this on the sixth day 
kind of a battle plan on how to get better organized and approach it. Maybe I should have said it before the first day. But it isn't over just because we get through tomorrow and haven't become perfect. You can use these principles and these points throughout the year. Because this is the formal putting out of sin, where we really address it in a formal way. But you have to address it every day, every hour, every minute, and every second of your life. Our goal is to be just like Christ. To act like Him, to think like Him, to react like Him, and to think the same thoughts He thought and thinks. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Emmanuel. So it's a daily, momentary battle. And the better organized you stay, and the more you remind yourself of the rules there in Exodus 20 and other places throughout the Bible, the better chance you're going to have. God told Joshua there as he was going, as he led the people into the promised land after Moses died, God admonished him to read this book of the law, which was all they had then was what Moses had written. He said, Joshua, you should read that every day. And if you do, you will have good success. Even if we want to overcome things, even if we wish to change, if we are not reminded constantly from God's Word, it is so easy to lapse, to forget, to not remember to do, to coast along. But if we put our nose in this book every day, it will remind us and it will help us see clearly the work that still needs to be done. Because I can't, can you? I can't pick up this Bible and flip it open anywhere, anywhere, that it doesn't tell me something I need to do or think or be. Everywhere, every scripture is there to remind us. So maybe that's the final key I want to mention is be sure you keep aware, keep in tune with. God gave this to us as a major tool to help us. And it is so easy to forget and let some of these words drop to the ground. And it has to be a constant review. It isn't just for knowledge. It isn't just for understanding prophecy. It isn't just so you can quote a scripture. It's to remind you and me of what we are and what we need to be. And we need that reminder daily because human beings can forget from moment to moment. I've caught myself doing that. I'll be thinking, you know, I need to be thinking this way. Uh, perish that thought think these thoughts, and without my even knowing it, ten seconds later, my mind's clear over there somewhere, thinking something vain, ego, um, by vain I mean worthless, unhelpful, maybe wrong. It can go there, just drift there so easily. This helps you bring it back day by day, and that's one of the biggest keys. Pray and read. Keep it ever before God. And do it in an organized fashion. 
And you're going to have a whole lot better chance to do some overcoming than if you just sort of haphazardly go through life unorganized and not really knowing what you're about. Know what you're about. Know what you need to do. And go through these steps, get organized, and get it done. That's what God wants us to do. Not to him that wishes he'd overcome, but to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me and my kingdom.